0: Hello and welcome to Queer as Fiction, where we talk about the history of queer representation in the media. I'm Jason. And I'm Eli. And today we're here to talk about the 1994 road trip comedy from Stephen Elliott, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. We have some content warnings for this episode, including racism, homophobia, and transphobia, including acts of violence, deadnaming, misgendering, and the use of slurs. This is a road trip comedy. <laughs> yup, it sure is. <laughs> if any of that sounds like something you don't want to listen to, please feel free to skip this one and listen to a different episode. We have many episodes, some of which don't have many content warnings at all. Others have different content warnings, so... Many of them have these exact content warnings, so, that is you know. true. <laughs> So yeah, as I said earlier, Priscilla is a 1994 road trip comedy uh, from director Stephen Elliott, who hasn't directed much else that I think you will have heard of a lot of films in the 90s. And it stars Hugo Weaving, Guy Pearce, and Terence Stamp as three drag performers, two cis queer men named Tick and Adam, and a trans woman named Bernadette. And it follows their adventure across the Australian outback uh, from Sydney to Alice Springs in order to reach the Lasseter Casino, where they will do a drag show. Uh, they've been hired by Tick's wife, Marion. Mm-hmm. That's basically the story. Yeah, there's not like a whole lot of plot, really. I guess road
1: trip novels and films aren't really known for like convoluted plots at the best of times.
0: Yeah, true. Yeah. It's just kind of like we're going to see some things. Yeah, we're going to see some things. We're going to learn some stuff about our characters. Yeah, the real journey with the friends we dead named along the way. (laughs) I have some beef with this movie. (laughs) I'm sure you do. The film was part of the sort of rise of the Australian film scene in the 80s and 90s. It won an Academy Award for Best Costume Design, which seems fairly well-deserved. There are a lot of really cool costumes. Mm. Also a lot of completely ludicrous costumes. The overlap between those two categories of costumes is very strong. (laughs) And the, the cultural impact of the film was significant. It was a big showy piece of queer representation gone mainstream uh, to the point where an homage to it was made in the closing ceremony of the 2000 Sydney Olympics. It's also a film that's inspired a lot of different responses from people, both at the time of its release and moving forward into the present day. So I firstly want to talk about the production of this film and the context into which it was released. The film came out in a political climate that was finally beginning the slow process of recognising the legitimacy of the gay community. Anne-Marie Cook points out that in 1991, Paul Keating became the first Australian Prime Minister to support Mardi Gras. In 1993, the federal government opposed anti-gay laws in the state of Tasmania, which were eventually found to be in violation of the UN Declaration on Human Rights. And in 1995, the government introduced interdependency visas that extended immigration rights to same-sex couples. However, there were obviously still significant barriers uh, for queer people, and the Labour government at the time did stop short of endorsing the sexual discrimination bill put forward by the Australian Democrats. So that's just a bit of historical context for people who aren't Australian or weren't alive in the 90s. I'm the same age as this movie. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. (laughs) I am ever so slightly older than this movie. Yeah. (laughs) So into this climate comes this film from a bisexual director centered on the experience Experiences of queer people in a specifically Australian context, and it speaks very clearly about the ways in which LGBT people are accepted in some ways and in some places, but not fully and not everywhere. That's kind of like the central theme of the film. Yeah. Or at least one of the central themes of the film, I would say. Mm-hmm. I just want to talk a little bit about the people involved in the film. So I've I mentioned that Stephen Elliott is bisexual. Reviews of the film obsessively referenced the actor's heterosexuality while ignoring the director's bisexuality, which was is quite
1: interesting. Was he out when the film was released? Yeah, he was. Okay.
0: Yeah. And, like, even – so I read an article that – uh, featured a bunch of different reviews, and a mm-hmm. lot of them were talking about oh, yeah, you know, Guy Pierce is like rugged masculinity and like. Very much making sure to reference that, like, Hugo Weaving, like, has a wife and yeah, like, yeah. all of this kind of stuff. I mean, the character has a wife, too. Yeah, true. So. <laughs> and then even the one review that did mention Elliot's orientation immediately cast doubt upon that label, saying, Though a self-proclaimed bisexual, Elliot demonstrates the same fear of showing intimacy as any of the more hard-bitten heterosexual Australian directors. So What? Like, yeah. in the film? Is that what they mean. Yeah. Or just like in his personal life. (laughs) In the film, which is interesting because I don't feel like there was reticence to show intimacy. Like, sure. There's not like sex scenes.
1: Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, maybe what they're referencing is the fact that like none of the three main characters are in a relationship with the other main characters. So like we do see intimacy, Mm. but like, I feel like we kind of expect and maybe even more in the nineties for like queer films to center around a gay couple and like probably they're quite tortured and stuff but that's another matter Mm. and so forth and i I, like something i liked about this one is that it's like three friends hypothetically at least um (laughs) yeah so maybe maybe they're like you know where is it Mm. Where is the torture to get kissing? I don't understand, like maybe that's what's being
0: yeah that may be that know. may be what was being referenced, and then, in terms of the cast, uh there was an interview that guy p s did with outrage, where he was asked if he's ever had a homosexual experience. I found his comment quite interesting. He said, no, I haven't actually had a homosexual experience, although most of my male friends are gay. I consider myself to be straight only because I've never had a homosexual experience, which I guess is a way of defining that. But yeah, I just found that kind of interesting as a comment. I wonder
1: if Guy Pearce has had a homosexual experience since, and if he has, if he considers his sexuality to have been completely transformed by that
0: or not yeah guy ps if you're listening please feel free to I mean, reach out yeah like there's
1: there's still time left buddy <laughs>
0: like, <laughs> i'm yeah.
1: sure the world's into like
0: rugged australian masculinity still i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i mean in iron man 3 he's presented as being like an attractive dude um yeah so that's a bit about the context into which the film was released and sort of what the public reaction was to it. The film made a fair bit of money in Australia, Uh, I think it made in modern dollars it would be about 28 million dollars which is pretty good for the Australian market. Um, (laughs) It had a limited release uh, overseas and there were some comments from the director about how different audiences would respond better to different parts of the film oh okay in the scene where bernadette and bob have stayed up all night talking and then they've like fallen asleep outside and um adam comes out and is like what is it she's left her cake out in the rain i think is what he says and apparently french audiences just like didn't get this at all and american audiences laughed for like 10 minutes okay i didn't get this joke (laughs) what i mean i don't like i guess it's just like the cake is like her makeup
1: what with there being a cake there, one of the things that I like unambiguously liked about this movie was how just like any random thing they needed was in the boss. <laughs> and the film was very shameless about that being the case and was like completely disinterested and being realistic about it. And I liked it a lot. There's a tanning bed to this boss.
0: Yeah. Like, yeah.
1: They're like poor and on a boss. And there's a tannic bit. I don't know. I found very and funny. there's a
0: giant shoe.
1: There is a giant shoe, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> For some reason, I was just willing to accept that part. But the fact <laughs> where they seem to have, like, a full kitchen somewhere that we can't see. And yeah. it's like, they're constantly pulling, like, full armchairs out to make a, like, campfire setup and stuff like that. I just found that, like,
0: a non ceasing source of amusement yeah it reminds me of when i play dungeons and dragons and we constantly are like yeah i pull this thing out of my pack and it's like you realize that that object is bigger than your backpack right like how big is this pack i thought you were gonna <laughs> insinuate that the priscilla bus is just like a large bag of holding <laughs> yeah i mean functionally that's what it must be yeah I guess so, yeah. <laughs> it's a bus of holding a bus of holding <laughs> So I want to talk about two major themes in regards to this film – The first centered on the idea of community and the second on that of identity and intersectionality. Let's talk a bit about community first. Although the characters spend the majority of the film on a road trip to the rural city of Alice Springs, the film is quite specifically taking on the Sydney drag scene in a sometimes affectionate and sometimes scathing kind of way. And like the making of the film situated it as part of the community to a certain extent, with drag queens hired at local clubs to participate in certain scenes. As Alan McKee points out... The Weeping Mourners are a collection of famous Sydney drag queens. Oh, Uh, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, He quotes Stephen Elliott as saying, Tim Chappell and I had been up all night, ended up at the taxi club giving drag queens $100 notes. (laughs) (laughs) Relatable. (laughs) Um, So, like, that would have been such a hilarious scene to film. Mm. (laughs) Like clearly they've been up all night and then they're just like, Yeah, come come to this. So they're filming the next day and
1: they're just at a club and they're like, Here's a hundred bucks, come to a graveyard with me, there'll be cameras. (laughs) Yeah. And some people are like, Yeah, yeah, sure, that seems
0: fine. Yeah. 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 so they're all hungover as hell that's what's happening in that scene yeah 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 which i feel is probably
1: yeah, 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 also what works. the characters are like yeah okay that's fair. i was gonna say like if you can't get actors who can like act mourning in a realistic way i'm not saying they couldn't but like if you can't getting them really hungover is probably gonna work
0: <laughs> so the film very much presents the idea of a drag queen scene which is interesting in that it differs from a lot of um queer films in the 80s and 90s where you would have a lone gay person Mm. who's isolated from Mm -hmm. their community Mm. and i think the film presents both the positive and negative aspects of being in an intense scene like that part of the premise of the road trip is that they're all trying to escape Mm. the scene that they're in and the ways in which it can be draining and toxic and catty But then by the end of the film, when at least two of the characters return to Mm. that scene, you sort of see that it's also a place where you can kind of choose your own family and where you can find the freedom to express yourself and gain power from that community. And so, yeah, what what did you think about the ways in which this film presented the queer
2: community? Mm.
0: Like, it did a pretty good job of talking about a queer community, given that
1: it does take three people out of that and does have them like at least physically isolated from the Mm. scene. Like I thought it handled that pretty well. Mm. I was interested throughout this movie in to what extent it was being like self-aware in trying to criticize the scene in some ways and Mm. in what ways it was just reproducing problems within the scene without thinking about it. And I really don't know where they thought they were falling in that case. In some places, so like there are times, as you mentioned, where they do just like verbally like weigh up the positives and negatives of being in Sydney versus not. Essentially, mm-hmm. I feel like they've kind of divided Australia up into like those two categories. <laughs> which as a Melbourne person is like, okay, that's fine. I guess. <laughs> a thing that I found interesting is in the first scene. So like the first scene and the last scene of the movie are essentially the same.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: In that it is Adam and Tick performing at the bar. And in the first one, it's, like, not a great time. Mm. And Tick isn't that well received and gets a beer can thrown at him and, like, falls over and is just, like, I need to leave. Yeah. And then at the end, like, everyone is, like, super excited and it's this, like, really raucous show. Mm. And I guess that was sort of interesting, like, is that meant to be more of a reflection on their kind of, like, internal feelings than on the reality of what is happening in that scene? Or what? Because like you would assume that Sydney hasn't changed.
0: Yeah, and I mean, that may get into a little bit the historical context that I was referring to earlier. Mm-hmm. It could be that Elliot is making a point about the changing attitudes of society. But yeah, I think more likely it is what you said about it being more a reflection of the character's self-perceptions and particularly Tick having... Come to accept his identity and accept his profession Mm. in a much more positive way. Yeah. I think you hit on something quite important when you were saying that they did a pretty good job of presenting this idea of a community despite the three characters being isolated from it. In that the escape from the city for them is framed as necessary, but but the characters bring their baggage with them, and ultimately they are presented as not only members of the community, but They are the community themselves. They Mm. can't just change the environment in order to fix the problems in their lives. And Mm. I don't know, that resonated with me quite a bit. Yeah,
1: yeah. I hadn't really thought about it in that way, but the way you put it there also is currently resonating with me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess as someone who's considered, like, running away and working at the resort in Uluru before, I was there a while ago and had a job offer, and I'm always kind of like, I could just leave and work in Uluru at any point. Yeah. It's surprising
0: that that didn't resonate with me more. (laughs) (laughs) Before I give you a chance to talk about the representation of the queer community in this film, I just want to talk a little bit about what the press set at the time so there were a lot of different reactions to this movie.
1: I'm very interested to hear this because I did wonder I knew that this wasn't like a tiny indie movie that was only seen by queer people and I was kind of wondering like who is this for and (laughs) how was it experienced by non-queer people because I really can't imagine so please tell me.
0: Yeah so we had the full spectrum of reactions so some found it radical in a positive way Mm -hmm. in the way that they were saying wow this is a huge step forward for queer representation and like you know it's sort of bringing this community out into the light Mm. but then obviously there were also like conservative reactions which were kind of you know oh how dare this filmmaker show these perverts the flip side of that is that there were people saying that it was very tame. So a lot of people were like, well, this doesn't really do much for queer representation. Yeah, I saw a comment which I found quite funny because obviously this film to some extent exists in the same space as The Birdcage, uh, in that it's a step forward from the 80s where queer people were presented as only ever being unhappy mm-hmm. and having sad endings. very like moralistic. and such yeah, well. yeah, yeah. And this is a movie where all three of the main characters have a fairly happy ending yeah yeah yeah. and one of the comments i saw was someone being like oh it's just a like 90s version of lucky jafo i was like oh oh yeah right this movie did come out just before the Birdcage, cage so that comment does make sense in that context mm, interesting <laughs> some of the people that described it as being tame in a negative way uh included some of the gay press so for example uh marcus o'donnell suggested in the melbourne star observer that there is nothing transgressive or even slightly confrontational in either of these films talking about priscilla and another movie the Sum of us they are not gay films at all oh well that's i feel like a ludicrous overstatement They're- not gay films at all. I feel like we've
1: come across this a lot when we talk about movies, where like someone in the community will be like, "This is not what I want representation to be." So they'll be like, "It's not a gay film." Yeah, and I don't understand the sort of like mental logic that people are going through. And
0: it's interesting because I don't think that's really a view that we see expressed anymore. Oh, well, I was specifically thinking about Call Me By Your Name. Oh, okay. But that's
1: a whole oh, other... no, true. Yeah, you like, totally I, right, I realise there's a yeah. whole sort of can of worms there. Like, one of the reasons, mm, at least mm. people say that, is because, like, they're saying that the age disqualifies it for mm, that, <laughs> mm. which, you know, we did an episode on, so i are not going <laughs> to reopen <laughs> the can of worms now. But I feel like I have seen people say that about films that have, come out yeah okay um, no recently yeah i think you're right Mm. it's really interesting to me that this film like when i was growing up kind of managed to be just kind of of one of those australian family films Mm. like it exists very much in the same space as like the castle to me which like i'm not going to recap the castle for everyone else <laughs> in the world but like it's like an older australian film like it'll be on tv every now and then and people are like oh yeah this movie and watch it as a family yeah kind of thing yeah it definitely and priscilla was like, also that when i was a kid like i remember it being on the tv while there were like barbecues happening and it's mm-hmm. like it's, it's so weird for me that it's managed to become so mainstream and maybe that's something that i feel a little bit about like some forms of drag in mm-hmm. australia Mm -hmm. in general Mm -hmm. but i definitely went into it being like oh yeah this is like essentially a tame sort of family film and then with like some of the humor and stuff like that i was like i was allowed to watch this at like eight what yeah um so yeah it's really hard for me to kind of have a coherent picture of this film in my head yeah and i
0: think you've hit on what was the last kind of reaction I was going to talk mm. about, which I think is probably the one that has stuck, at least in an Australian context, Yeah. which is the idea that it's reasonably tame, but that's kind of a positive in that it's able to present queer identities and queer culture just as being fairly normal and being a part of society that exists. Mm. And, you know, there are differences between the rural community and the city community and the indigenous community and the non-indigenous community and there are lots of intersecting lines that we'll get into in a little bit but in the end it the movie does kind of fall on a side of being like yeah it's all australia everyone's yeah part of this so we've spoken fairly positively about the queer representation in this film so far and certainly some aspects of it are quite positive i quite liked how the film makes a clear delineation between the character of Bernadette, who is a trans woman, mm-hmm. and then the two other drag queens, yeah. Both in the way that they dress, the way that they act, you know, all that. But there are some very problematic elements.
1: Yeah, there sure are. Yeah,
0: in this film, and I know that you've got some thoughts on this. Yeah, even like human being with eyes, it's true.
1: <laughs> yeah, so. I guess the way that I would like to start talking about this is a profound ambivalence I had with the way that this film used humour. You know, it's a very comedic film. Mm -hmm. Like, a lot of the dialogue are jokes and so forth. And there were times where the use of that humour I found to be, like, very touching and very interesting and so forth. There's a few moments of real genuineness and real tenderness in this film Hmm. that stand out so much because the rest of it is like fairly lighthearted even when terrible stuff is happening and the film makes it clear that a lot of the humor that they use as kind of like a weapon to counteract the intense homophobia and transphobia that they're encountering everywhere they go and some of the jokes are genuinely really funny and like quite clever one that made me laugh was when tick said to adam there are two things i don't like about you your face <laughs> i was like oh that was clever that was funny i liked that but on that note like that's obviously quite a catty comment that's coming out of a relationship of these two people who are like are friends and Mm. support each other and are quite close, but also like the three of them in the bus are constantly kind of making those catty comments and kind of undermining each other and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I felt weird about that. Um, Mm. That's not a kind of humor that I personally like to engage in. Mm. I know some friendship groups do and like if it's fine within the context and everyone kind of knows where the lines are, Mm. cool. That's fine. But no one seems to know where the lines are in this film and nothing's off limits. And so kind of where those jokes were fine and when they started to be a problem, I wasn't clear what the film thought and I don't think that it is delineated in any meaningful way. And that's where we get into a lot of the blame transphobia, especially Adam indulges in, mm-hmm. where like an ongoing thing in the film is that he uses Bernadette's dead name Mm -hmm. and he doesn't view that as a problem really like he knows that he's doing something wrong because she gets upset obviously Mm
3: -hmm.
1: but you know he keeps doing it and he's kind of like oh i just like getting a rise out of people and whatnot Mm. and yeah i guess that like the fact that some of these sort of like mean-spirited jokes that got a rise out of people and were clearly upsetting to some degree or another, to the person they were aimed at, were treated as, like, clearly fine and just kind of how humour worked in that setting. Mm. And then some of them, I felt, are, like, obviously over the line, such as making jokes about how Bernadette's just an old transsexual. I felt like, overall, that meant that I just remained uncomfortable with the humour throughout, and I didn't really know where I was and when that was going to kind of shift into something that I felt was, like, profoundly not okay. And a particular reason why... I felt weird about that, particularly with the character of Adam, who is the worst person in this movie. (laughs) <laughs> Ooh. Well, okay, no, no. The worst person on the bus. Yeah. I forgot about the entire movie, never mind. <laughs> I sharply retract that comment. Who <laughs> is like, the most blatantly offensive of the three people who travels on the bus?
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: So Tick, as we've mentioned, has this whole kind of journey of acceptance. So like, he meets his child at the end of the film and he feels like he needs to put on this act of, like, very traditional masculinity for his son. And his son, like, does not care Mm. that his father does drag and thinks drag is really cool and wants to see his dad perform ABBA and whatnot. And he wants his dad to have a boyfriend. Yeah, and he's like, it'd be nice if you had a boyfriend. And, like, that's one of the tender moments that I mentioned exists in this film earlier there's a few shots at this movie where like a character will be saying something and another character's like behind them having an emotional moment on their face Mm -hmm. and all of those moments got me like real hard and this is a good key example of that where his son's just like hanging out and skipping rocks Mm -hmm. and Tig is like having an internal journey yeah so like tig has that Mm -hmm. character arc Mm -hmm. and bernadette starts off you know, her boyfriend has died. Mm. Her boyfriend, she sort of talks about briefly, wasn't really into her anyway. He was just, like, fetishizing her for being trans.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and at the end, she's kind of got a shot at a genuine relationship with someone who likes her for who she is. Yeah. Not So they kind of both have, like, stuff that happens to their character. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel that Adam really has that.
0: Yeah, I, I mean... Yeah, I think the film's presentation of Adam is interesting in that the film kind of makes it clear that it's not necessarily... <laughs> the film kind of makes it clear that he wasn't particularly close mm. with the other two before coming on this mm. trip. And that his purpose for being there isn't as urgent as theirs. Mm. And I do think that to some extent the film does make a little bit of a distinction between the gentle roasting that's kind of presented at least as a very Australian cultural norm and the comments that Adam makes that clearly upset people and particularly Bernadette,
3: Hmm.
0: although he also uh, does this to tick as well yeah with regards to his wife and their relationship yeah and i think it does do an interesting thing of showing the difference between roasting someone who you have a close relationship with and you know where to draw the line in the relationship between tick and bernadette and then someone who comes into a friendship group and thinks well therefore we make these kind of jokes so I can make mm. whatever jokes I want mm. in the form of Adam. I do agree that I don't necessarily think the film follows up on that and has Adam experience an arc where he grows mm. and stops doing that. I think that would have been yeah. really positive. Like
1: the last thing he says to Bernadette when they leave Alice Springs is calling her dead name out the back of the car. Yeah. I was like, really? Like you're committed enough to that bit, I guess is what this is that that's what we end their interaction on like what do you what is this to you the filmmaker
0: Mm. yeah and i mean in the end adam's stated purpose for being on the trip was to climb king's canyon in full drag Mm -hmm. and he achieves that yeah that's true and it's kind of interesting to me that the other two had clear emotional Mm -hmm. reasons for going on this trip and those get explored and more is revealed about those characters And we don't really get that for Adam. He just kind of, he's a simple character at the start, and he has a very simple expressed goal. He achieves that, and his role in the film seems to be entirely comedic. Really? like
1: Yeah, I, I mean, know. I guess we can talk about that scene. Yeah, true. Um, uh, which I don't feel really changes Adam as a person or anything like that but mm. certainly is a moment where guy pierce does some pretty intense acting and is one of those like more wholeheartedly serious moments that the film has occasionally yeah um so i'd seen this film before as i've mentioned like a whole bunch of times growing up so i took the liberty of skipping this scene mm-hmm. when watching it because i just don't need to mm. be watching it. i've been in country australia mm. you know i just not watching that. Yeah. But like we we're referring to a scene in which like Adam gets assaulted and it very nearly goes like much worse and then is saved by Bob and Bernadette and then has a like breakdown in the hotel room.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Like I think that that goes some way towards rounding him out into not just being like a flat character. Mm. I don't think that he is a flat character. I
0: just don't think that he like really changes in any way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's yeah. probably a good way of describing him. So that leads us pretty nicely into talking about identity and intersectionality and the ways in which other people respond to the three main characters throughout the film. Yep. Because the intersection of different identities is a huge part of the narrative and the queens encounter several individuals and groups that are sometimes part of the dominant culture and sometimes outsiders from the dominant Mm -hmm. culture, but in different ways to the ways they are. Mm -hmm. So the first time that the Queens have a significant interaction with people once they leave Sydney is when they reach Broken Hill. Mm -hmm. And they have some positive interactions there where they sort of get out of the bus and there are people being like, Oh, okay, cool. And there are other people who are clearly like uncomfortable with their presence. And They go into a bar and people are clearly uncomfortable with their presence and clearly rejecting these queer people from this space. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, one of the ways in which this film uses humour and sort of shows this idea of Australian culture being centred on sort of Roasting people basically is that there's a scene where a woman, you know, sort of goes on a rant talking about how these disgusting perverts need to get out. Yeah. And then Bernadette, like, snaps back at her and roasts her.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And that leads to the Queen's forming a measure of acceptance in the bar. Yeah. Although there's a clear extent to which this acceptance is very limited as evidenced by the fact that the next morning when they wake up their boss has been vandalized yeah and a horrific statement is written on the boss yeah i don't think i need to repeat nah. it. yeah you can
1: make up one for yourself
0: yeah <laughs> and so yeah and i think it's interesting the way that that scene plays out because you have this woman in a very masculine male-dominated space Mm -hmm. um, in this bar and i think that it's a very deliberate choice to have her be the one Mm -hmm. who actively insults the queens rather than just kind of giving them the silent treatment which is what the men are doing yeah and i think it's an interesting demonstration of the ways in which people who are marginalized in one way one of the ways that they sometimes deal with that is by being very aggressive about marginalizing other people. Mm. And so, yeah, I, f- I found that a really interesting, like surprisingly complex demonstration of that in this scene where you've got a woman who, you know, it would be really tough being a woman in that kind of space, mm. particularly a woman who dresses fairly masculinely and not doesn't present in a traditionally feminine way. Um, yeah,
1: I mean, I think it's interesting um, to talk about her presentation as well, particularly like, obviously like they're in the country and I've lived in the country and I find that sort of like the ways that women, particularly older women can kind of express or like kind of do away with some traditional femininity Mm. is actually more expansive there than in sort of an urban setting. I thought it was really interesting that she is like, at least to the viewer, quite a, to some degree, gender non-conforming character, you know, she's got short hair and she's dressed in quite a masculine way, Mm. interacting with other gender non-conforming characters, but like in a very different way. Yeah. Um,
2: yeah,
0: and I think there's an um, extent to which you've got people on the margins of a community who are kind of, who reject these people who very clearly go beyond the limits of what's acceptable in that mm, community. Mm-hmm. And I guess, I don't know, it just, it resonated with me as kind of a scene of like, you know, when you're on the edge of something, you want to make it clear that there's a boundary between you and mm. these people.
1: Um, I'm interested to see what you thought about the depiction of class in these sort of rural settings, maybe particularly in broken hill um Mm -hmm. because i felt that she was verging on a bit of a caricature of like working-class country people Mm -hmm. particularly the fact that she was like physically dirty Mm -hmm. Um, like it like they really slapped a lot of like dirt on her hands and stuff Mm -hmm. like that you know obviously they're hostile to her because they're hostile to them but i don't know i found it interesting that the film decided to construct like that character
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting. This is actually something I was going to get into a bit later, but I can get into it now, in that obviously the majority of the film is in rural settings Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of homophobia. Yes. And certainly I think it's a reasonable argument to make that this film perpetuates stereotypes about country people being homophobic Mm. and poorer people in particular being homophobic. On the other hand, (laughs) I guess it's interesting that there's kind of like the one token nice country person in the form of Bob. Um Although, obviously, he's not the only person who treats them with respect in the entire film, but he's the main one. of the, yeah, one, who gets... the only one who actually is like a character, per se. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I did think it was kind of important, therefore, that in the first scene of the film that we've talked about already that they make it clear that that kind of toxicity isn't unique to the rural sphere in the sense that you know you've got guys in Sydney throwing cans at the drag Mm. queens as they perform certainly yeah I think you know you've sort of described the way that this woman is the way that they chose to present this woman you know put dirt on her and that kind of thing. I think that's going a bit far. Mm. But I think overall the film probably does a an okay job of being like, well, it's not necessarily that everyone in these communities is – very homophobic
1: yeah i don't know yeah i mean it's difficult to manage with nuance in a film like this the fact that like yes country towns in australia to this day are quite homophobic Mm. with the fact that we tend to talk about that through demonizing lower class people as being uneducated and therefore enlightened and so forth Mm. um and i don't yes they somewhat manage that stereotype of country people being or rural people being all homophobic by not having them all be homophobic Mm. and like yes bob obviously is like a mechanic or a tow truck driver or both yeah certainly Uh, a working class yeah a working class person like you know that obviously helps that he's Mm. somewhat accepting but it's that thing where like going back to the humor here i like never quite felt like i was on stable ground from a lot of different sides like both as a queer person Mm. and then even in the queer settings as a trans person and Mm. then also as someone from like a working class background who grew up partly in the country. Yeah. Just let me have one moment.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that kind of brings us nicely to the presentation of Indigenous people in this film. In in this case, we're talking about rural Indigenous communities mm. who suffer a lot of economic hardship mm. in Australia. I am interested to hear your thoughts on the presentation of Indigenous people in this film, um, because I feel like you have a more nuanced understanding than I do of Indigenous people. But overall, I felt I was pleasantly surprised.
1: Yeah, I I feel like overall, like, of the depictions of racial minorities in this film, this is
0: the better one. Oh, by far. Uh, <laughs> that's, I don't think that's a question. And we're, we're about to
3: get into
1: yeah, that. Yeah, but it did because I remembered the other thing, which we'll get to. Mm. And so I'd forgotten there were Aboriginal people in this movie, to be honest. I haven't seen it in, like, a decade. Yeah. And so when that scene started, I was like, oh, God. And then it was like, oh. Okay, mm. so you know, like, yeah, that's all to say, like, yeah, this isn't like overtly horrifically racist. Typically, I'm not Aboriginal. I have connections
0: with some Aboriginal communities. I liked a couple of things about mm-hmm. the scenes with Indigenous people. So, um, some of the criticism I've read um, of this film talks mm-hmm. about how oh, you know, this is just kind of a stereotype where you know, the native people are just here to help the white man. Mm. And I was kind of like, well, that's not necessarily the case. because, And I'm fairly certain one of the articles where I read explicitly referred to them fixing the bus, but they don't fix the bus. Um, they don't actually serve a mechanical purpose in the narrative, really. It's just that when the bus is broken down... They meet them. They meet the indigenous people and they spend a night hanging out with them. Yeah. It's, it's not that they fix something mm. and that helps... Helps the people go on their journey further.
1: Yeah, I read a uh, criticism of this as well, where they describe it as a white savior narrative, and I also think that that's not actually really evidenced mm. in the text at all. Like, they don't bring anything to the Aboriginal community. They don't kind of like like I, I don't feel like either of these groups really have changed or are in a different place when they part ways. They've just kind of like yeah, hung out a bit.
0: Yeah, and I um, and I which thought... is probably
1: about the like best way you can depict that mm. in this setting.
0: Yeah, and to the. Extent that they brought something to each other it was having a performance together mm-hmm. where they mixed drag with traditional indigenous performance mm. which i'm not necessarily in a position to say whether or not that's disrespectful i know some people have said that but in the film i thought it came across as quite sweet yeah i think the,
1: the thing that made me feel okay with it is that i really thought they were going to show more traditional forms of aboriginal mm. like dance and performance. Mm -hmm. Like, I thought they were going to kind of, like, bring out, like, body painting and Mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought that that was going to get into some pretty tense ground and some weird kind of parallels, but they didn't do that. Yeah. And I thought that having traditional instruments like the didgeridoo being there and whatnot, but not trying to depict anything more than that, which I really don't trust even earlier to have done, um, was, again, probably, like, about as, as well as they could handle that in the setting the main criticism that i would make of it is like like any other random person they come across here these aren't really characters and they are just kind of like oh we're showing this nice panorama of australia of course we'll have an aboriginal scene so it is like Mm. somewhat tokenistic in that sense you know Mm -hmm. these aren't really characters except for alan Mm. uh, who gets a few lines and you know has some fun putting on dragon is, like, a nice guy. Yeah. But that's about it. Um, he's credited as Aboriginal Man in the in the credits. Um, Alan Duggan is the name of the actor, and, like, they refer to him as Alan in the film. In the film, yeah. Um, so, like, I feel like they could have
0: put his name in the Alan credits. Alan instead yeah. of
1: Aboriginal Man, but um, <laughs> there's
0: that. Um, but, like, overall, like, it to me seemed fine. Yeah, you talked just before about how they didn't, like, bring out body paint and they didn't, like, have people, like, you know, be sort of stripped down and not wearing much. Yes. And yeah, I found it interesting because to me, the indigenous community that we see who are out in the outback, but they're not exactly like low tech or anything like that. Like they've got cars and stuff and, you know, they're just kind of like they're sitting around a fire and they're having a good time Mm. also just the way that they were dressed like there was a mix of fashions and there was kind of a diversity in that community that was interesting and almost more diverse than some of the scenes of rural white communities that Mm. we saw where you know they would go into a bar and like all of the guys would be wearing almost the exact same outfit
1: (laughs) (laughs) they just went to like some you know country sort of like clothing place and like i need 500 flannels yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, is like
0: yeah, I need... wildly inaccurate to yeah. a country
1: bit. <laughs> yeah.
0: I need 500 flannels, 500 pairs of jeans, and 500 Akubras. Yeah. Stats. <laughs> Maybe throw in a few
1: uh, white symbols they love, thanks. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I do know there's been a bit of controversy to get a little bit off topic about yeah. the stage show and Aboriginal people. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that when performing this overseas, I didn't look this up or anything, I've just like heard people talk about this because I know a lot of people who are gay and also Aboriginal. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if this is something they've actually done or something that they've like considered doing and then not done because of backlash, but sometimes they cut the scene mm-hmm. with Aboriginal people okay. in it. Uh, which obviously is something that people would criticize mm um this is very much a like as i described earlier kind of like panorama of australian life and yes yeah. cutting aboriginal people out of that especially when you've already had a scene with them in it, is yeah. inappropriate yeah um yeah and i know that part of the reason why various people who put it on will justify that is saying it's impossible to get aboriginal actors when i'm putting this on in england or whatever which i think is a bit weak Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think if I was going to criticise the film's depiction of Indigenous people, it would only be to sort of say that whilst this film presents one idea of how Indigenous communities Mm. exist in the country, which Mm. is that they have their own separate Mm. community, which is true in some cases, um, but not in others. And certainly a lot of rural cities have significant Indigenous populations yeah. in the city. Yes. And so... It well, would I mean, been... also, like, they're in Alice Springs. Yeah, yeah, know, yeah, There's yeah. a large Indigenous community there. Yeah. Put some Aboriginal people there. Yeah, and I think we may actually get a little bit of that in Alice. From okay. memory, I think some of the staff of Marion's Casino thing, yeah. are... Is it Marion's Casino? Like, does she run the whole thing? Uh, no, I think thing, she manages, just... like, bookings or something yeah, like that. Like, she yeah. doesn't, you know, own it. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, but, like, you know, we don't care about whoever does own it, so we can call it Marion's Casino if we want
0: to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I, from memory, some of the staff are Indigenous. Hmm. So I think we do get that a little bit in Alice, but, um, you know, in Broken Hill and in Coober Pedy, mm. um, I don't actually know off the top of my head what the demographics of those towns are, but I imagine there are Indigenous people.
3: Yeah, and I mean, towns. you know, in
0: Sydney,
1: for that matter. Yeah. Like, there's yeah, certainly yeah. Um, Aboriginal people involved in the Sydney casing. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine that's new. Yeah, and so... I mean, even, like, frankly, from doing
0: research for the Mardi Gras episode, I know it's not new. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> um,
0: so, I think there could have been a more diverse array of Indigenous representation, but the representation we do get is not
3: Yeah, and I negative. think, um,
0: like... On that topic of
1: sort of the small country towns and things like that, in addition to Aboriginal people, like small country towns like Broken Hill, I don't know. My grandparents lived in Broken Hill when I was mm. growing up, so I spent a bunch of time in Broken Hill, never yeah. cooked pity. Mm-hmm. Um, but like this kind of image of small Australian towns being all white isn't
0: really true. Yeah, not at all. Yeah, we've had, that. We've had several waves of migration yes. um, and people have been sometimes forced and sometimes through choice have ended up with recent migrant communities mm. in country towns
1: yeah that's um, been been
0: a big part of the continued existence of a lot of these towns because there has been a general move in australia and in a lot of countries um of people moving closer to the big cities Mm
1: -hmm. um yeah and i think uh this might be a nice way to move us along Uh, in particular there's a quite sizable minority of uh, East Asian immigrants and that goes Mm. back to like the gold rush times from China in particular yeah yeah Um, so I think that with films like this just a greater representation of just like East Asian people existing in this country is obviously necessary Uh, but not like this
0: (laughs) yeah and that brings us to Cynthia to Cynthia yeah so Cynthia I would say is the worst part of this film yeah Cynthia who is the one Asian character in the film, from my memory. Yeah. Certainly the only one with any significant dialogue. Yeah. And so Cynthia is the wife of Bob, who is a man who um, helps fix the titular bus. Um, (laughs) The titular bus, I love it. (laughs) And yeah, the presentation of Cynthia's character has a lot of problems. You know, they do the thing of, I, I don't know if they necessarily told that actress to play up her accent more. Hmm. um but certainly they deliberately choose to have her say things that emphasize her accent in a way that is used for comedy yes yep. i don't know that i could necessarily say that her character is a stereotype so much as it is like eight different stereotypes that have been mashed together in a very strange way sure yeah in the one of, one of the articles i read tried to kind of Defend and rehabilitate. Oh my character. god! Um, written by whom? May I ask? <laughs> um, I think this was.
1: I mean, my the... question is ultimately: Was it written by an Asian woman?
0: No. Okay, that's uh, enough for me. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the things she talked about was how this character is strong and independent and sort of gets what she wants, and I'm like. I mean, to a certain extent that is true, but also she's a character who tricks a man into marrying her after getting him drunk
2: Mm.
0: and then overtly uses her sexuality to kind of get what she wants in a country town and then leaves and is also awful to the main characters Mm. of the film. So she's presented in a fairly negative light. Yes. You know, I, I think there are some things that they did with this character that are just inexcusable, mm-hmm. and then there are other things they did with this character that are problems specifically because she's the only Asian character in the film. So they meet her, as you mentioned, as the wife of
1: Bob, and she is has a very played-up broken English and mm-hmm. an accent. Yes. So, <laughs> okay. So she is very, very keen to perform mm-hmm. as well,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and Bob is very against that to the extent of locking her in the house Mm -hmm. Uh, and she is presented as being i'd say like almost sort of manic Mm. about wanting to get out uh and she does and she goes to the bar where the drag queens are performing the drag queen's performance goes over like a little balloon uh to mix analogies there (laughs) and then cynthia goes on the stage and she performs an act where she dances in a sexy way and then ejects ping pong balls from her vagina and i think like there's some ways in which the basic description of a filipina uh sex worker who also performs Mm. could have been done really well you know in forging solidarity with the drag queens who like also perform yeah but there's no solidarity between cynthia And the drag queens. And also, everything about this is horrifically racist, as we've mentioned. Yeah. Missed opportunity isn't really sufficient here, Mm. but it certainly is that. Yeah, it is
0: that, and then it's also... Actively, really bad.
1: Yeah, as I said, this is the worst thing about this film, in my opinion. Like, I feel like this takes this down like a whole kind of like
0: letter grade for me, at least. Yeah, as an overall film. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. After this, Cynthia leaves the narrative; she drives away and is never seen again. And hopefully, has a better life in a better movie. Yeah. And Bob then begins to journey with the queens, and this is when we get to Kuberpete and the uh, assault scene that we've talked about earlier, and. Yeah, I don't think there's a huge amount to say about the presentation of these men. Yeah. Mm. It's a fairly simple, they are very homophobic. Adam being the younger of the three is kind of really keen to go out and really keen to dress up and you know, seems to not necessarily quite understand the context of how much danger he's in by going Mm. out. It's also high we should maybe... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, we've already talked about that scene a fair bit. The last major character who the the queens interact with is Marion who is Tick's wife and the mother of his son and she's a very positive character some of the reading I did for this episode <laughs> talked about how this film parodies femininity and how it treats women poorly mm. and I think it does in the case of Cynthia but I think that's more about race than it is about gender and certainly there's intersection there but I think that the film presents Marion as being a very positive
1: character yeah I like Marion
0: probably of the character in the film one of the most unambiguously positive characters in the film yeah is she a lesbian like she's um, queer
1: yeah so I, I, well that's kind of interesting both tick and marion are potentially bisexual
0: yeah um, there is one scene where tick is asked about his sexuality yeah um and
1: when it's revealed that he's like had a child with a woman yeah 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 well it's not actually revealed that he had a
0: child with her but like when it's revealed that he married a woman yeah and you know he's asked if he's straight and he says no and then yes. he's asked if he's gay, and he says, no.
1: So... Yeah, I, I don't remember if it's at the exact same time, but there's a part where I think Adam uh, is like, oh, so do you bat for both teams? And Tick says, no. And he kind of says, well, are you gay then? And he goes, no. And he's like, what are you? And he goes, I don't ever know, know. Yeah. And I'm like, you yeah, know, like, I, I know that, that kind of leans into the thing where we never say the word bisexual in the film. Mm. But the way that it was in that scene, I kind of quite enjoyed, where he was, like, not angsty or anything about it. And he's quite angsty about the situation with mm. his child mm. and whatnot. Where it's just like, I don't know, like it just says what it is. Yeah,
0: it's unclear what the exact nature of Marion and Tick's marriage was. Yeah. I really liked the flashbacks we did get of them getting married and whatnot. Mm. Though, like,
1: I found that a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. Uh, where we see their wedding and Tick is in
0: drag as a bride and Marion is wearing like a suit. Yeah.
1: And that yeah. was cool.
0: Yeah. It's good in this film that we get some really positive examples of queer parenting in that their son is great. He is cool. He's... I love yeah, Actually, yeah, he is the most unambiguously positive yeah, character in the film. True, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think probably as pretty much the only child that we really meet yeah. in the narrative, yeah, this ultimately is a very hopeful film. And one of the ways it is that is that we have this child who is more aware of queer issues than mm. almost all of the adults that we meet.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: there's definitely a message of like, you know, the next generation are much more accepting of queer identities.
1: I really liked the kid's relationship with Adam as well like they just kind of immediately start hanging out and Tik has a bit more kind of reservation because he's feeling conflicted about being a drag queen mm-hmm. and what his son might think of that but mm. Adam has no such reservation so they just kind of immediately like are hanging out and lip syncing her and Ticks son is like so does dad have a boyfriend and adam was like oh i I don't know and the kid's like oh you want to play
0: lego and i was like
1: yeah 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 it's like it's just nice yeah
0: it's it's interesting i obviously wasn't an active drag queen in the 90s so i don't know (laughs) um exactly what the scene was like Mm. but i would be interested to see if that Discomfort that Tick experienced versus the sort of ease with which Adam mm. interacts with this child is somewhat representative of the kind of generational divide between yeah, maybe, um, maybe. the two older queens um, mm-hmm. in Bernadette and Tick, um, who are clearly depicted as being like a good, you know, like... Bernadette obviously is like middle-aged and mm-hmm. like talks about that quite a bit. But even Tick is like clearly a good decade older than yeah. Adam. And so, yeah, I'd be interested to see if part of that was just this idea of, you know, you have guys like Adam who've kind of grown up in a ever so slightly more accepting environment and so are kind of more comfortable discussing their sexuality with people and just presenting their identity.
1: So I think we should talk about the climax of this film Mm. uh, before we wrap up. So this gets into a lot of, like, thoughts I have but no real conclusions (laughs) about how they interact with the Australian landscape in this film. And I think that in... Both of the climactic scenes, so their performance in Alice Mm -hmm. and their climbing King's Canyon in drag, Mm -hmm. uh, interact with that sort of overall theme or motif or whatever of interacting
0: with, like, Australia. Yeah. Just a brief observation. I appreciated the way that they did their climb of a big Australian Mm. thing not at Uluru and instead at King's Canyon which um, for those who don't know is a place, one of the reasons why it's called King's Canyon and hasn't reverted as other places have to a traditional indigenous name is because King's Canyon doesn't have a huge amount of cultural significance to the the indigenous people of the area. Mm. So it was good that they chose to go to that place and have that be Adam's stated goal it means that that scene hasn't aged as terribly as it otherwise would have yeah
1: so for those of you who don't know uh in the middle of australia so not at Alice springs but like relatively close to it on the scale of this gigantic country is uluru which has also been called As rock but is correctly referred to as Uluru. Mm. uh and there's a huge issue which is finally being resolved yep. of white australians and i guess like also tourists from other places climbing it mm. uh which is in direct contradiction to the wishes of the aboriginal population of that area um and is just kept happening for several decades despite it just being like a clear-cut inappropriate thing to
0: do. Yeah, and also um, an incredibly dangerous thing to do. Yeah. Like, like, obviously, that's not that's not the principal reason why we're yeah. now shutting down people yeah, climbing like, it, but also a bunch of people have died. Fallen off and died, yeah. And I mean, that's one of the uh, issues that
1: the Aboriginal community of the area mm. objects to it. Mm. Like, it's not the only reason, mm. but I've certainly spoken to Ananoo people who are the people of that region, who talk about feeling, like, a sense of responsibility for people who die fallen off the rock, Mm -hmm. given that they are the owners of that rock. Also, it's um, the most visually stunning place
0: I've ever been, and you should definitely go there if you can, and be respectful. Yeah, I can second that. It's Mm. an incredible experience. Yeah. Um, And you don't have to climb the rock. You can walk around the rock.
1: Yeah, walking around the rock is a fantastic thing to do. It's a way of engaging with the culture and history of the Aboriginal owners of that land and learning about it, as opposed to just reenacting colonialism, which is explicitly what climbing the rock is meant to do. Yep. Um, and there's a lot of similar issues with people trying to c- climb, like, Cata which is another giant mm. rock formation nearby, which is also visually stunning, and which is also sacred to the people yeah. of that area. Anyway, so the Australian landscape, mm-hmm. as we've just touched on, is so beautiful. Mm-hmm. I think about this sometimes when we watch Australian films about just how... Amazingly diverse
0: and gorgeous, this country is. Yeah, um, and, and it's great that this was filmed on location. Yes, which is great not only because we get to see a lot of this beautiful landscape, but also specifically you get the understanding that yeah, the outback. There's you know, it's a lot of it's quite dry and hot, but it's not a desert. Mm. Like there are deserts in Australia, yes. but there's also a lot of vegetation and
1: yeah, a lot of um, like what we think of as the desert in Australia, which is like a huge part of australia Mm. is actually
0: very vibrant and full of life yeah king's canyon in particular Mm -hmm. is the center of king's canyon is so beautiful and there's so much lush greenery there uh
1: and like animals as well like we see a bunch of lizards in particular Mm. in this film um and so i think probably the part that i enjoyed best was just their sort of wide shots Mm. um not just of australia but of specifically them like contrasting uh the three main characters in drag against this landscape Mm. um you know with the really vibrant colors of the Australian desert against the really vibrant but different very different colors of these like very elaborate
0: drag yeah islands. It was interesting that I read some criticism of that. Oh, okay. Um, in terms of people sort of saying, "Well, you know, they're just kind of highlighting the absurdity of these queens."
1: Mm. I I don't feel like they're trying to highlight absurdity, but I think there is a strong dichotomy that's made in the film between sort of like the natural and the unnatural. Mm. Um, and I guess that's kind of what I want to get into a little bit with discussing the landscape. Um, I think with that kind of like natural versus unnatural thing, a part of uh, what I like about how they concluded that theme was when we see Tick at the end kind of wearing very masculine clothing, mm. it is so clear how unnatural that is to him. Mm. And his friends kind of like rib him for wearing those clothes. Mm. And him accepting himself and what is natural to him is putting on this huge drag outfit. So I feel like it, it doesn't end on any kind of note of like, yeah, this is just artificial and not genuine.
0: Yeah. And disposable and yeah, And even throughout the film, mm. there's a couple of scenes that they do that serve no real purpose aside from being visually spectacular, mm. where they have, I think it's usually Adam, it may always be Adam, but it may be Bernadette or Ticket Points, on top of the bus, Yeah, in, drag, in a full drag outfit with like massive props, which is like, how the hell did you set this up? Um, everything is in the bus. Everything is in the bus, and, every, and the bus and is magical. sometimes on the bus. Yeah. And those shots, I don't think they really highlight absurdity. It, it looks beautiful.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, like those are the kind of things I was talking about, and for me, those were the most... Like, like, unambiguously, like, simply positive moments of the film. Yeah. I thought
0: they were gorgeous. It was interesting because, yeah, like, on a similar note, yeah, the when the queens step out into the towns throughout the film mm. and they're obviously dressed very differently to all the other people in the town.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Honestly, I kind of, like, resonated with that. Like, we've been on road trips and mm. stepped out in country towns and, you know, we're not drag queens. No. And we're not certainly not dressed in, like, full-on... Um, Outfits
1: made out of, like... 20 pairs of thongs.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But I've definitely had that experience of stepping into a country town and being like, oh, wow, yeah, we are so colorful in comparison to, Mm. like, the general... Um, fashion sense
3: here.
1: Mm. Um, Especially like there's times where we've been away to people's like holiday houses and stuff. And there's been like 15 of us walking through the town and it's like, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like maybe one of us could have flown under the radar, but we're all here and like half of us have been here.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I didn't interpret that as saying that these queer identities were unnatural and didn't fit in. It was Mm. kind of, no, they're just very different. Um, And I think the film, as you kind of said, ends on the note that these differences can be complementary, not opposed. Yeah. Very much the scene where they climb King's Canyon Mm. is very much like, yeah, there's juxtaposition here, but it's not a bad thing. Yeah, um, it's Both of these things are good.
1: So as we move through this film, they're on this sort of journey of acceptance, not necessarily in a linear way for tickets very much that, but more just kind of exploring where they're accepted, where they're not, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. And that I feel is very much played out by their interaction, not just with the people of Australia, but with the landscape as well. Like, mm. I think that's set up to parallel. And it's interesting to kind of see where the landscape is hostile to them and where it's something that they're engaging with more positively and sort of feeling affirmed mm. against. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I think those two climactic scenes of them performing, uh, in the casino and of them climbing King's Canyon, mm. both really utilize sort of natural imagery and then kind of in harmony with the country, mm. uh, as a way of kind of signifying that that like journey is somewhat done for these characters. Um, so when they're performing in drag, like we haven't really seen this so much before, but there is a lot of imagery of native, uh, Flora and fauna. Most obviously, they have the like frill neck lizard outfits, outfits. which are so great.
0: <laughs> They're so much fun.
1: Yeah. They like pop up the frill necks in the first, like at different times. Yeah. And like the first time I was like, ooh. And like i the second time I was like, ooh. It's like, <laughs> like, you know what's going to happen by now. And then, yeah, like obviously, it's Kings Canyon. They're in the canyon. They're climbing
0: that. Yeah, so in the end, although this film occupies a similar space in Australian culture to films like The Castle and The Dish and, you know, sort of other really occa, classic Aussie films.
1: Mm, I haven't thought about The Dish in so long.
0: <laughs> I think what we've proven with this discussion is that there's a lot going on in this movie Yeah, for, yeah, what is essentially a road trip comedy. There's not a huge amount that happens plot-wise, but there's a lot that's going on with these characters. There's a lot of interesting and sometimes awful, but always compelling <laughs> representation of different communities mm. and different identities and the way that those intersect. And I think that whilst, yeah, obviously some of the scenes in this movie are very dated, I think that it speaks to modern identity politics and modern understandings of intersectionality and still has valuable things to say.
1: Um, I mean, it's twenty-five years old now, but I don't think Australia moves quickly enough for that to really make that much of a difference.
0: Yeah, with that, we've been Queer as Fiction. I'm Jason. I'm Eli. Uh, If you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to follow us on Uh, Twitter, Tumblr, or Facebook as Queer as Fact. You can find our episodes on Podbean, uh, iTunes, Spotify, and any other podcasting platform that you use. We also, if you would like to support us, we really appreciate reviews. Um, They help us find a larger audience. You can also support us by visiting our Redbubble store where you can purchase merchandise with our Queer as Fact logo. And we also have a Patreon where you can support us uh, to help us make better content and do things like rent this movie <laughs> twice because we had to watch it separately <laughs> Yeah. as fact will be back on the 15th of september with an episode on the 18th century french spy the chevalier dion this is actually our last episode for the season so we'll be back next season with more films books who knows yeah. If you join our Patreon, you'll actually get to vote on one of our episode topics for next season. This episode was, in fact, a Patreon-chosen mm-hmm. topic, so thank you to our patrons who voted. And with that, we'll see you next time.